welcome to the Education Innovators Podcast. I'm Eric Byron, and it's an honor to host this show where we get to hear from talented educators who are willing to share their stories of the incredible things they are doing in learning environments all over the world. White male students still did better playing with the game, but the improvement for female and minority students was much higher. And that was a bit of a surprise to us. Now we know why. We're back for the second part of my conversation with Andre Thomas, the director of the Live Lab in the School of Performance, Visualization, and Fine Arts at Texas A&M University. For his full and very impressive bio, please see the show notes and please listen to part one if you haven't done so already. In this episode, we take a close look at Variant Limits, the game Andre and Triceum created that teaches calculus. I've been in and around the video game industry with an interest in learning games since 2006, and I can tell you I've never seen any learning game that comes close to the standard that Triceum's games set. Keep listening to learn more. So let's talk about proven. Yes. <laughs> so how do you measure the the learning, right, that, that comes out of a game like, uh, and it's called Variant Limits. Welcome to Variant Limits, a revolutionary new way to teach calculus, an innovative tool to empower and engage students. The first in a series that will transform the calculus experience. Play to learn with Variant Limits. Right? That's correct. The, yeah. the, the current one, right? The, uh, first one in the series of four uh, for calculus. So, yes, how do you know that they're really learning? Yes. Um, so th- that's a great question. A lot of people, including myself at the beginning, thought like, what? Well, you know, just takes a game in the classroom, gives the students a test before they play the game, have them play the game, gives them another test, and then see if there's a difference. Well, research would tell you the very notion of giving students a test and then giving them a similar or the same test again a few weeks or a month later, you will see improvements, even if you do nothing. So if there's absolutely nothing in between, because by the very notion of taking the test, you're already biasing um, your students. So there is going to, you're going to be seeing some improvements there. Please Um, don't tell the poly youth because I used that strategy to get funding for the uh, second round of development. <laughs> so the the other thing you have to take into account is when measuring that is typically there isn't, let's say you have one month, right? You, you, you administer a test and then you administer another test a month later and in between they play the game, but they also have classes. So they're not doing nothing. They're actually going to class. And so how do you differentiate between, well, the knowledge gain between what they learn in class versus the knowledge gain that they learn um, from the game? So the way to set that up is with a control group, where you literally, and that's what we did here, we had a control group that did um, instructions as usual, plus, because the game was assigned as homework, plus homework that was equivalent, but not the game, and then the experimental group that was getting the same instructions and playing the game 
instead of the traditional homework. And now we measure the difference between these two groups at the end of the intervention and at the end of the semester. <clears throat> and the way we measure that, we took the standard calculus quiz or test that they get throughout the semester and final exams, final grades. Because instead of creating a different intervention, it's like, well, hold on, they have to take this test anyways. We got pre prior years of grades. We can take the same standard test that's being used for which they're being graded, and we compare those two groups against each other immediately after the intervention when they take the test, and then at the end of the semester to see, well, <clears throat> did this help or was this just a short term thing because sometimes you know things are you know you're getting prepped for a test you do well but there's long term it doesn't really build on it well in math a lot of the concepts building on each other and the reason we started with limits if students get limits if they conceptually understand it they will do better in the rest of the calculus sequence and the test actually supported that that yes they did better at right after we gave them the game to play and significantly better at the end of the semester. And the really surprising thing for us here was that women and minority students did significantly better than white male students. White male students still did better playing with the game, but the improvement for female and minority students was much higher. And that was a bit of a surprise to us. Now we know why. And, of course, it was a very pleasant surprise. All right. So you know why. Why? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Don't leave us are. hanging, Andre. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, math, like you said, it's very intimidating. Yeah. And so when you are a minority student, when you're a female student, you already have more anxiety or tend to have more anxiety about math. Less confidence. So, yeah. You know, less confidence. And and so when you do your traditional assignments and you fail once, you fail twice, you tend to, okay, well, I'm either going to drop out or this is, you know, your own belief just comes back to you. You know, it's um, self-prophecy. Yeah. Versus in a game, oh, well, I can try again. I can try again. There's no... And pressure of somebody watching over you. Oh, you have to get this right now on this test versus, well, if it takes me 10 times, you know, I get it right. And so our theory is that because the game is a safe environment where they can try, where they can experiment, they can safely fail over and over again until they get it right. And that getting it right, more of them get it right at the end versus with traditional methods. And that's why we see such a bigger improvement with female and minority students. Yeah. Well, this is actually one of the concepts for me in learning game design. I did this with the, with the poly, even with my low uh, res 2D games. But we actually intentionally set some things up so that they would fail because I knew, right, if you just go through the game and everything just works, you learn much less than if you get halfway through and it kind of blows up, right? You yeah. go, oh, that strategy does not work, right? Because once you figure out why that strategy doesn't work, you've learned more than probably if you've just stumbled upon 
a working strategy without understanding why it works, right? Yeah. So yes, failure in, in a game is actually really good learning. Um, so, well, failure yeah. in real life is we learn more from our yes. failures than we learn from our successes. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. So how do you balance? So this is a, a little bit into the design kind of component of this. So one of the things that I struggled with in my games and, and trying to tune them right was the, the difficulty factor. How do you, cause if you make it too easy, it's not challenging and the fun goes out of it, right? It's just too easy. I, I just play right through this and, uh, no problem. If you make it too hard though, then you get the, the opposite effect, right? They get frustrated. They stop playing, right? It's no yeah. fun because it's too difficult. So you want it to be fun, but how do you, how do you tune like that? And you're teaching something like calculus that's inherently going to be hard, right? How do you keep it fun, but not make it so easy that the answers are obvious and, you know, they cruise right through it? Yeah. So that's a very, very challenging thing. I mean, that's the, that's the, the special the, sauce, isn't it? Uh, yeah, exactly. But the, the way we do it is we start off with very, very specific learning objectives. And also with assessment. How do we know that somebody achieved the learning objective? Once we have those, we also determine once we have the learning objectives, what prior knowledge does a student need to know? Because you can take our calculus game and I could, um, no offense, Eric, I could give it to you, but you're probably not going to finish uh, because you don't have the foundation because I'm for... dumber than a brick. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, because you, you don't have the prior you knowledge. You worked with me, you know. It's all right, Andre. <laughs> you don't have the prior knowledge uh, that's required. And so you have to be aware that there is a prior knowledge component. And then there's a concept in education that's called scaffolding, where yeah. you literally build on, you know, prior concepts. Okay, we assume a student understands um, and is able to do X. Well, if they can do X, now we can introduce them to Y. The key here is to, like you say, you don't want to dumb it down, but you don't have to be afraid of a hard challenge because ultimately, you know, to learn limits, I can't give you half a measure of limits just because you struggle. They all have to learn to the same, get to the same end point. Yeah. Some students get there in one or two tries. You know, they're breeze through it, they you know, they got prior knowledge, they may read up on it, and it's typically your A students, they're going to ace it, they're going to coast through, it's like, wow, no issue. Some students really, really struggle. They take, you know, and so I take the variant game, for example, it takes an average of six hours to play. I mean, a great student probably gets through in, you know, two or three hours because they know the material. But students that are struggling may take 20 hours. Mm. But they're all get to the same point at the end. Because somebody said to me, why, why would you give somebody 20 hours of homework? It's like, well, how much time should we allow to, for somebody to master something? Should yeah. we say, well, after 10 hours, if you didn't get it, well, you just don't worry. Well, you know, you didn't get it. No, we want everybody to get it. And so in the game itself, then when you see students struggling if they're like trying the same thing 10 times and not progressing you bring in help right you bring in through you know a help system so we have a little character in the game that will talk to the player and provide some hints and so on they can also 
look up some here and so that because what we don't want is them getting stuck and never moving forward because we haven't yeah. achieved anything. So you gotta have to create some form of a help system to help them along. Um, and they eventually get it except in the, so every, for us, every level has an assessment at the end of it where here they're on their own. They have to master that on their own and it's designed in a way that trial and error will take you weeks, months, to get to the you're right just answer. Right. Yeah, right. If you just if you're just guessing, you're not gonna get through. You actually have to know. And so we found people that, you know, oh yeah, yeah, I, I can just guess and game the system. Then they got to the assessment puzzle. I was like, oh, well, this is taking for I better learn this stuff. I was like, yeah. yes, okay. And remember, games are designed to not replace traditional materials, you know, readings, exercises, lectures. And so on, they're designed to go alongside them. So the teacher also has conversation with the students. The teacher is also working with the students, mentoring them, guiding them. So that also comes into play when using a game. With entertainment games, you don't have a guide, right? If you don't, if you can't kill the alien boss, <laughs> well, then you just can't, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you're out, you're out of luck. Right. Well, there's cheats and guides and walkthroughs and yes. all that stuff that's available out there that shows you how to kill the boss. But, yes. yeah, well, and there's the same thing in calculus, I'm sure, right? They get oh, really absolutely. stuck. They yep. go out there and find other resources that explain it in a different way that maybe resonates with them better than what's in the game. Well, so and the there's other- also, sorry, there's also um, actually walkthroughs of our game out there on, available online. And your teacher's <laughs> asking, oh, well, it's, it's like, yeah, but you see, the, if a student uses that and they breeze through the game because teachers have traditional tests, quizzes at the end, well, now the student fails it because they actually didn't learn. They just followed somebody else's thing. And so faculty knows that it's like, yeah, that's not a problem because it's like, you know, somebody else doing your homework for you, you're still going to fail the test. Right. And that's the ultimate proof. Obviously, uh, you're always going to hit those people who are going to try and cheat and find a way around having to do something, which raises another question for me. So in the places where this is being used, is it considered kind of extracurricular or is it really like a required component of the course and and teachers are monitoring, getting a report, how many hours did they spend and, you know, what were their scores and the assessments? Is it tied to an LMS or whatever? Yes. So it has to be part of requirement because if it's optional, students will not do it. Uh, anything you make optional, students will not do. Only your A students will do the extra credit. The students that actually need it, they will not. And at the end of the semester um, or at the end of the year in high school, they're realizing, oh, my God, I'm failing. Oh, can I do something? Can I do something? Well, now it's too late. Yeah. Um, yeah, so extra credit is, I highly advise against that. Um, you will not see the results. You will see your A students doing who the extra credit. don't need the extra credit to it, right? Yes. Down, who don't need it, but your B, C, you know, F students who need it, they will not do it. You have to make it required. Now, the problem with making a game required is we know 97% of students play games four hours or more every week. But the moment you make an educational game required, 
and I would argue probably any game, even entertainment game, required, you will be surprised that all of a sudden, the 3% that don't play regularly games are all happen to be in your classroom. There's some reason, it's like nobody in your classroom plays games. They don't have computers. They don't have internet. There's, you know, they just can't do it. Yeah. We've seen that. And it's like, because we always thought like, well, sure. You know, when students say, oh, you get to play a game. It's like, no. I mean, who wants to do extra work? Nobody wants to do extra work. Because that's extra reading. And so, you know, you can't really say, well, I can't read. Well, you, sh- you shouldn't be in class. But, oh, no, I got no internet. Oh, I got no computer. Oh, I don't play video games. You know, all of these excuses all of a sudden come forth. And you're like, well, what do I do? Well, COVID well, so kind of spoiled that whole strategy, right? Because I mean, if you couldn't get online, if you didn't have connectivity, uh, you were really, really broken. Right. But you, you're still going to get those excuses. And so what we recommend to faculty and to teachers is make it required but make it a choice to the students to say, okay, here is traditional math homework, you know, versus here is playing a game. You can choose one or the other. Here is reading a book, writing an essay, or playing a game. Oh, all of a sudden you find, ah, 90 plus percent, if not all, will choose the game because now it's their choice. Yeah. And it's, it works really, really well. But if you don't give them a choice, what we've seen, and we, um, it took us a while to figure that out. And yeah, we had faculty that came to us. Oh, I've got horrible reviews. The students hated it and so on. I don't know what to do. And that's like, okay, well, what if you provide them an alternative? Do A or B with A yeah. being traditional homework and B being the game. And all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, they're all playing the game and my reviews are. Tremendous, you know, they really love it. It's like, yes, okay, good. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, yes, classic psychology uh, there, and the, and the students. Yeah. So I have a question about the, if you will, kind of the investment in developing mm-hmm. a game like Variant. So yeah. how long does this take? And you know, I mean, you don't have to give me cost numbers necessarily, but you know, give me some idea of the scale of uh, producing a game like that. How many people involved, and how long? Yes. So, um, Darren took just under three years, a few million dollars to develop. And it started off in the lab, but the quality to really get it to where we wanted to get it to, we brought it into Triceum and had some professional finish the games. And it was a, at a high point, over 40 people working on the game to really get it into that place. This is also the first time we made a 3D game. For us, we really wanted to try can we change the notion of what it means to be an educational game and create a game with the production quality of EA, triple A games, but with a budget that's a fraction of the budget that they have. So that was our goal. And I think we've been very fortunate to, you know, come very close or actually achieve that. Yeah. And so now Aren't you're in the process of trying to recover some of that investment, I assume. Yes. Um, yes, trying to. <laughs> of course. Yes, get schools to pay. So how does that work? So it's part of Triceum, right? So it's a business. So you yes. can go out there and, and, and sell the game. So how, how is that going now? How do you market uh, a game like Variant and convince schools to put it in their budget? Well, um, very, very difficult because 
you're going to a school and you ask him, and most schools that I know of, um, they all don't have enough money. I don't want to say they struggle financially, but they'll never have enough money to do the things they want to do. And so now you're going to them and say, hey, give me money, uh, money you already don't have to do this extra thing. Yeah. So you're not replacing anything. You're not taking anything away. Um, you're not saving them money. You're asking them to spend more money. I think an argument that Andre forgot to touch on here is the fact he pointed out in part one. 40% of students fail calculus, causing a significant number of dropouts and degree changes. There's a cost to the university when students drop out due to not being able to get through calculus that can be minimized with a game like Variant Limits. Some schools will do it, and many schools don't. So that's why we don't see educational publishers out there. That's why we don't see um, yeah, the exactly successes the argument EA made, right? We, we saw in the early games. Now, that's not the only thing. And so you literally, so we first started out going door to door, knocking on faculty stores, say, hey, we've got this thing. And, and that's, you know, how we got our business. And the faculty that are using our games, they've been using our games for years. It's very, very once, if, if it's a good game, and if they see the results that they're expecting, it's very, very sticky. But it's very, very labor intensive to do that. The other side of it, and so we have no mass penetration. Yes, we've got schools all over the world that are using it, but we're nowhere near yet recouping yeah. our investment. The other side of that is there's no platform out there for educational games. Uh, because one game, a school doesn't want to buy one game. A teacher may use one game, but a school yeah. wants a catalog of games. So if I go to university, I go to a high school where they want, I don't want one calculus game. I want 10 calculus games and I want chemistry and I want biology and I want for all these others. So I want to buy a catalog and makes it available to my students. Well, that's not available today. Some people try it. They're creating really, really cheap, quick games. And obviously that's not working because people don't go for cheap, quick stuff. So having, oh, yes, look, I've got all these little flash games, every subject, but they're not really games. They're not really teaching. So because teachers aren't idiots and neither are students, you have to deliver something of high quality. Yeah. So a platform is missing that connects into LMS systems, that delivers games where other companies can house their games on like the Steam for game-based learning, but that also supports the teachers with grading and so on. All of these things are not in the marketplace. And it's like, you know, what we say is in game-based learning market right now, we've got a car. Like in 19 or 1890, you got a car and it's like, oh, wonderful. You know, I can get from New York to LA with a car. That's great. But hold on. There's no streets. There's no mechanics. Yeah. There's no gas stations. So the whole infrastructure doesn't exist. You're like, well, the car is nice. I'm going to go back on my horse because, you know, the infrastructure to get me to LA from New York is there where with a car, it is not. So we have to create the infrastructure. And that's what we actually been doing over the last few years at Tricean is developing exactly that, that infrastructure that we believe is needed, which is going to be a tipping point. The other side of it is 
even if the infrastructure is there, you still got to have to have a value proposition to a school where instead of them spending more money, they're saving money. So buying your game, they're saving something else. And obviously it's not, oh, well, we can get rid of teachers. We just use games. Well, no, that's <laughs> clearly not, not yeah, the yeah. E- equation, right? And right, so you right. have to um, create a value proposition. Okay. What can they save? What can, you know, you, they do away with when they use the game? Because now with that value proposition, you have something because unfortunately it always does evolve around money. Right. I mean, it's a business and schools have very little money. And so they have to be cautious where they're spending their dollar. If they spend them over X versus over Y, you have to give them a reason to, okay, well, you don't have to spend it on X and you can spend less on Y, um, i.e. your game. Now you have something that actually works. Any other way, it's not going to be uh, sustainable. Um, if they have to spend extra additional budget on your game, it's not sustainable because schools, unfortunately, are not really investing in the success of students, right? So, <laughs> Ouch. Um, okay. It's a- yes, and it's, it's it's very harsh, but if you look across the planet, we don't really have, okay, dollars spent versus A's awarded, right? Students are graduating. That's a commercial equation that we would use in industry, but that's not a school equation, right? And it can't be, to be honest, because schools shouldn't be a commercial enterprise. Now, there may be for-profit schools, that's how they calculate, but I think they're calculating more on, okay, tuition dollars received versus students graduated. And so the incentive to graduate students successfully I have not really come across that as a metric because the students are also all different, right? Not every student is going to get an engineering degree. Not every student is going to get a psychology degree. I mean, you know, at, in the U.S., the students that actually finish a degree is a bit over 50% compared to those that start a degree. Yeah. Well, imagine if you'd now tied dollars to that and made that, well, that's, you got to, I mean, we would be in a, I think in a very bad word. Um, so, you know, well, we could have a whole, a whole nother discussion on, uh, yes. you know, my <laughs> thoughts on, on schools <laughs> priorities and the uh, kind of disconnect between what, how schools kind of measure their success versus yeah. industry looking at graduates, right? And, uh, and graduates yeah. looking at their employment opportunities, you know, what, what should be a measure of success. And, uh, and yeah. yes, I do think there's a, pretty significant disconnect between how the universities view their their success metrics versus how the students and industry might view it. I, I do have a question though about AI. Mm-hmm. Does generative AI have the ability to help speed up the process of developing these games? So you said it took three years to create Variant. Now you can't eliminate all of the people involved, but is it possible now things are, you know, 
improving considerably and you know, we're seeing all of this stuff about, oh yeah, AI can, you know, kind of do the framework for you. And then you go and you, uh, you fine tune and add your creative pieces to it. Um, are you guys looking at, at that in terms of your, your platform? So somebody mm-hmm. could kind of come in and say, oh, I have these learning objectives and AI can kind of get you, you know, 50, maybe 70% there with the framework of the game. And then you go in and you, um, make it fun and do the rest of it. Is that possible? So, so we already use AI, but it doesn't get you 50 or 60 or more percent there. The, the, the way we use AI is in certain things. For example, <clears throat> you know, if we want to brainstorm some ideas, concept, um, some things out and so on, the actual design of the game, the game mechanics based on learning objective, that is still very much a personal. Um, a designer has to do that with an instructional designer and a content expert because you need all three. You can't just right. have a game expert do it. And so we are not aware of any AI tool um, that's out there. AI, I always tell my students, it's like if you look at uh, the Ford factory from 1920 and the same factory in 2020, it is very, very different. 1920, lots of manual labor, very tedious. 1920, uh, 2020, a lot of things have been automated, but the people are still there. They're actually, there's more employees now in that Ford factory than there was a hundred years ago, but they're all doing a different job. And that's what we're seeing. The way we're currently creating games, creating CG, pulling and pushing vertices, very, very labor intensive and it's obsolete and it boggles my mind that the industry is still doing that. Those things need to go away because that's highly inefficient. That's like a hundred years ago, manually assembling a car. What we're going to see is much more automated and our experts spending time on higher level tasks, moving and pushing vertices around. That's not a high level task. I need you to design things. I need you to be creative. That's not creative, right? Laying out UVs, there is no creativity in that. I'm sorry. I mean, that's something that can be automated, should be automated. So you can spend your time on designing the asset, designing the game, designing the mechanics, creating systems that can do these things. Yeah. Um, that's where I see this going. And we have already quite a few tools in place that can take us there, but not quite all the way. Awesome. So, Anything else you want to share? We're kind of running out of time here. We got just a few more minutes. Anything else you wanted to talk about? No, I mean, this, this has been fantastic. I mean, it's always great to share our journey and what we've um, been doing. We hope that I didn't um, get anybody too depressed of the state of the industry. It's a great industry. It will change. We believe, that's why we're still continuing to invest and um, develop at Tricium. We believe that the tide is coming um, for game-based learning and people will be able to make money and doing so. And we're already seeing in some countries there, like Poland, for example, games are now part of the national curriculum. So more and more interest is actually in educational game, more attention is paid to it. There's more developers, outside designers, and we still have a, you know, a variety of different qualities of types of games, 
but we're going to see that I, I think we're going to see that even explode much, much bigger than where we are today because this is engaging. The, the benefits of using games in the classrooms are so significant that you just can't ignore it. It's like, you know, I say like it's like the computers, right? When computers came around or calculators, oh, well, we can't use them in the classroom. Oh, my God, you know, our, our children will not learn. They become dumb, um, yeah. whatever. And it took a while to really, you know, get over that hurdle, over that misconception. Where we are at that very place right now with games in the classroom. Very, very soon, I believe within the next five to ten years, games will be ubiquitous in every classroom. It will actually come to a point where if you don't use it, somebody would come to say, Why aren't you using a game? What's wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. So and well, we're gonna you'll see be, Yeah, you'll be fascinated with the uh one of the other guests that I've had, Simon Engerer. So he's using video games in the classroom to teach writing, but wow. they're off-the-shelf games. So nice. the students play these games that have a great narrative in them, and then they write about the the game and the uh-huh. story and the characters. And again, it, it gets them more engaged, right? You, you could right. tell them to go oh, watch this video or that's not interactive or go read this thing and then write a paper about it. But when you ask them to play a game, and again, these are in some cases, uh, one of the ones they use is really a, a triple A uh, game, but yeah, it, it's brilliant what he's doing there. And uh, I've had the chance to, to work with him. I'm actually going to be doing an event with him again in September. Really fun stuff. But I thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to to share your story with me and, and my listeners. Uh, I know that uh, folks are going to be fascinated uh, by what you're doing. It's really, really impressive. I hope they go out and look. I will put links to both the games in the, uh, in the show notes. So if people want to go check, check them out, hopefully they will see how valuable they are. Maybe you, you gain some business out of this. <laughs> well, thank, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure and it's always great to see you, Eric. Great stuff from Andre Thomas, one of the smartest, most talented people I've had the privilege to work with over the years. I so admire his dedication and persistence in the pursuit of learning games and the commitment to build the infrastructure to support mass adoption of games for learning. I encourage you to check out the links in the show notes. I'm telling you, these games are impressive, but don't take my word for it. And just to be clear, I have no financial or business relationship with Andre and Triceum. This is not a paid advertisement. I just love what they're doing, and I hope you do also. If you're enjoying this podcast, despite the fact the host has never taken calculus, please subscribe and share. We have more awesome guests lined up and amazing stories of innovation and education that you don't want to miss. Please reach out if you have comments or suggestions. I'm Eric Byron. Thanks for listening to the Education Innovators Podcast, and thanks to all those education innovators out there. You are making a difference.